the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is actually part of what we would call the historical books of the Bible. In the Old Testament, we've got different sections of, of, of the Bible. With the first five books, we have the, the Pentateuch. It kind of gives the beginning and that early history, God's law given to the, the people the people of God. We've got poetic books, um, the Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Job, which we read from lately. Then we've got the prophetic books, books that, that where God has declared his faithfulness. But this is part of the historical books. It's giving the history what has happened? How is God's faithful dealing with the nation, these people that he's called as a nation, Israel? How's that looked? And the book of Ruth is a small little history in this book, in the book of the Bible. So why don't we read together from chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, and... Let's hear the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilon. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Chilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws to return from the country of Moab. For she heard that in the fields, she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws. And they went on and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, "Go, Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. Well, this is what God's word tells us. Let's take a look at this. Let's see what we can understand. And how. why would we be reading this even today? This is something that happened a long time ago. I think we're going to find that this has a lot 
to do with the world we live in today. Verse 1. Verse 1, there's three things in verse 1. We're going to take a bit of time here. Three very big things in verse 1. First, there is faithlessness. Second, there is famine. And third, there's pragmatism. Faithlessness, famine, and pragmatism. You see, the setting of this history, it's woven into the very first words. The days when the judges ruled. Now, that's a hint for us to be able to say, okay, when exactly did this happen? Well, it happened when the judges were ruling. In fact, that's the previous book in the Bible. It goes Judges and then Ruth. Okay. In other words, we could say sometime between chapter 1 and chapter 22 of the book of Judges, this is a little appendix of that time. This happened here. And although neither the book of Judges nor the book of Ruth really tells us explicitly the dates, it's with kind of strong conjecture that we could say that this is in the latter portion of the book of Judges. This is kind of towards the end of that time. And the reason we would say that is simply because we take the chronology of David and his family and we kind of date backwards. We're going to find that to kind of give a reasonable span. This was later in the book of Judges, even though we don't have those dates. What do we need to know about the time of the judges in Israel? Well, this is where we get the word faithlessness. The whole book of Judges is neatly summarized in one sentence in the book of Judges. You go to the end of the book. In fact, you go to the very last verse in chapter 22 of the book of Judges, and we get this little summary of the whole book. It says, In those days... There was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right. What a great day that would be. No king. Instead of kings ruling, there were judges. And it was before God had appointed any kings. Can you imagine a land where everyone does what is right? What a glorious time that would be. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the depths and the beauty of community, of harmony, tranquility? You wouldn't need to lock your doors because everybody's doing what's right. I mean, you wouldn't have to worry about your children, where they were. You would not need to correct your children because they too would be doing what is right. Wow, what a time. They would not need correcting. People would not lie to each other. There would be no deceit. There would be no jealousy. There would be no covetousness. There would be no need to covet or be jealous because people would be doing what is right. They'd be meeting other people's needs. What a time. Love without hypocrisy. Sacrifice. Care. Honest and hard work. No one is being exploited. No one taking advantage of the weaker. Friend, wouldn't you like to live in a time like that? Wouldn't you like to experience that? That time is coming. That time is coming. 
that day is on the horizon. But that will not happen until the king returns. You see, the time of the judges was nothing like this. They were times of darkness. They were, they were times of confusion. They were times of deceit. Times of exploitation. They were times of every man for themselves. It's my life. I'll do with it what I want. I do it my way. They were hedonistic times where pleasure was the standard of what was done. Let's live for tonight. There's no right or wrong. Let's just us and now. Wait. You said everybody did that which was right in the time of Judges. That, yeah, that's what the Bible says, but I did leave out a phrase. Everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. Oh. Oh, that's different. In his own eyes. What did that mean? Well, this is how people spoke in the time of Judges. Well, as long as you're sincere, that's what matters. I have to be true to myself. What I'm doing, it's, it's right for me. Oh, that, well, that's true for you. Well, I see things differently. And of course, well, what does your heart say? See, everybody did that which was right in their own eyes. The standard was me. If it's good for me, then it's good. And this was a nightmare time in the history of Israel. It lasted a quarter of the history of Israel. This is not an immoral world. It was an amoral world. There was no right or wrong. Everybody just did what was right in their own eyes. It was a sewer. It was a nightmare. God help us. It is the day that we live in today. This is our world. Friends, these are treacherous times that you and I live in. The world around us denies God's existence. It denies his rule. It denies his love, his grace. How easy it is to be infected by that world. What are the symptoms of being infected Infected by unbelief? Oh, there's many. Carelessness, indifference, jadedness, hardness. Has your heart become hard? Are you living for self? But friends, the darkness is far deeper and more pervasive than just that. You see, this darkness has also filled the church. God help us. The bride of Christ is filled with unbelief, wickedness, and apostasy. People that name the name of Jesus have a form of godliness and deny the power of it. They say it doesn't matter how you live as long as you believe. God's authority is denied in his word. You hear, oh, these verses don't apply to us today. 
God's standards, they say, have changed. Friends, is that you? Are you hearing those whispers? Are you hearing the whispers that say, why bother live godly? What does it matter? Why bother living pure? What does it matter if you look at pornography? What does it matter if you're addicted to some form of darkness? What does it matter if we're all like the Pharisees? We're nice on the outside, but inside we're full of deadness. What does it matter? Friends, it matters to God. It matters to him. And if all the world around us says it doesn't matter, it matters to God. Are you tired of living godly? Do you feel like giving up? Are you tempted to give in? If so, this book of Ruth is for you. Because that is the time that Ruth was alive. This is the, this is the days of Naomi. It's a record of time when all was wrong and all seemed lost. Everything seemed hopeless. But this book proclaims that God was still faithful. And friends, God is still faithful today. So we see there was a day, it was a, it was a time of faithlessness. But it was also a time of famine. Now, I, would, I don't know about you, I've never faced famine and hunger to the place where I'm thinking, I am going to starve to death. I remember meeting a friend here from, who is Kurdish. He and his wife had fled from Iran. They had, they had on foot crossed mountains, and they had lived through horrible things. And I remember him saying one to me one time, Joe, you have no idea what people will do when they're starving. You see, that was the time this was. In Israel, it was a time of famine. And I don't think we have any idea, but but we do have different famines today, don't we? Maybe you're facing a famine, but maybe you feel like famine because everybody around you has so much stuff and you don't have it. I feel like I have so little. Maybe you feel famine because because you, you feel like relationally you don't have the relationships that you want. Maybe circumstances are not what you want. In fact, this is like the introduction to the book of Ruth. Because here's this family. They're living in the land, and all of a sudden famine comes. And they say, I think we need to leave. Application number one. Friend, what do you do when there's trouble in your life? What do you do when things happen and you don't like it? Because some of us have this real propensity to trouble comes and I'm just going to move on. I'm going to to take myself and I'm going to go somewhere else. And we live life like this and this becomes a reoccurring pattern in our life that hard things, I just avoid them. And it's a very reasonable question for us to ask, why did this family go to Moab? Where did they ever get the idea that they should leave and go to a foreign country. Not just a foreign country. Go to their enemies and live amongst them. 
And that leads to our third word, pragmatism. Friends, if we don't live by the principles of the word of God, we will very easily live by, okay, well, this is how it works. The ends justifies the means. I'm an exception to the rules. And now we, we become the center. This is good for me. This works for me. This family kind of missed the idea that they were part of the community of Israel. That maybe them staying may have been a blessing. Maybe maybe they could have been a blessing to people there, but they're saying, no, I'm going to kind of watch for myself. We're going to go to Moab. Friends, it is so easy to be pragmatic, to think, okay, this is the best situation for me. How important when we have trouble in our life, how how important when, when things are difficult, when things are unexpected, that we turn to God. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, if they'd been looking at the word of God that had been revealed to them, they would see that God promised famine to the land of Israel. That famine in the land of Israel was actually kind of a sign to get their attention that they had strayed from the Lord. And we see this reoccurring theme, if you're familiar with Scripture, time and time again, that people, when things got hard, going all the way back to Abraham, we go, huh, it's kind of tough here. Let's go to Egypt. Let's figure out, I'm going to figure this out on my own. It's one of my besetting sins. I run into trouble and I think, okay, how can I figure this out? Okay, I'll make this work. Instead of turning to God and saying, God, I feel overwhelmed. I'm not sure what to do. What do you want? Well, this family leaves. It's a long journey. We can talk a little bit more at some point about the land of Moab. This was not a friendly place. They must have been realizing they were going to go to a land where they were now going to be strangers and foreigners. They're going to live in a land where their customs were far, far, far different than the calling of God's people in Israel. It was a famine, and they go there. Verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies in the land of Moab. Is that divine judgment? I wouldn't even say that. It's very possible that he would have died in the land of Israel. But it seems at this point it would have been a far better place to be in Israel and your husband died than to be in the land of Moab. Let me tell you something. As we read this story, we start reading a story where the wheels start coming off. This starts to get painful. Oh, there's a famine. We go to the land, and then we get lives that play happily ever after. They have a family. They meet kids, meet, get wives. No, there's death. If I told you this is where the story gets better, would you believe me? 
See, from our vantage point, we read these words and we think, oh, her husband died. And we do. We grieve. Death is an enemy. She tragically loses her husband. But now everything is going to get better. Oh, on an earthly level? Maybe not. But here is the fact in this family that we might say really shouldn't have been there. What we're going to see is we're going to see the divine hand of God reaching beyond people's bad mistakes and saying, I have a plan. Naomi had it tough. But now it'll be good. And friends, you might look at this and say, wait, wait, I'm struggling to see God's goodness here. I, I don't think I like this story. I like stories where things are not so dark. You see, if you do not like this story, one thing you may be missing. This story is a subset of a far greater story. And friends, you may be looking at your life today and be saying, you know, I don't like this story. This is not going the way I want. The plot twist here was unexpected. I don't like this place. I don't like how things are going. Friends, your life is a subset of a far greater story. You see, this story is a stitch in time of a far greater tapestry. It's God's story. And he is weaving something extraordinary. And he is so great, he is going to use your trials. He's going to use your tears and my tears. He's going to use your sorrow and my sorrow and my pain. And he is so good, he can even use your failures and your wrong choices, your weakness and your brokenness. Yes, even your sin and your rebellion to be part of his story. Do you see the darkness that Naomi is in? Her life is over. She's lost everything. There really is no future for her. She is, she is what we could say, she is a walking dead person. She is probably at the point of her life is, why even be alive? What good is my life? It's hard to understand. It's hard for us to grasp the depth of the loss. This is a place where, where there should just be mourning. Anybody who is in the circumstance her husband, her sons, her future, her security, her people. She's living as a refugee in a foreign and a hostile land. Do you ever feel like Naomi? I've lost everything. I have nothing. God had not forgotten Naomi. It's a dark moment. It's a, it's a hard place for Naomi. We need to keep reading. 
We look at verse 6. She's lost her, her husband. Then her sons marry, and they die. So now she has nothing. Verse 6, it tells us about 10 years have now passed. Verse 6, then she arose with her daughters, her daughter-in-laws, to return from the country of Moab. For she heard that in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws, and they went out on their way to the land to return to the land of Judah. And verse 8 might surprise us. I think it's a good question, a reasonable question to ask, wait, why is Naomi going to say what she's going to say next? Why doesn't she bring her daughters with her? Verse 8 and verse 9 are, are remarkable verses. There's something that we don't see real clearly here in the English. But there's a, there's a word going on here as Naomi begins to speak to her daughter-in-laws. Verse 8. Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The word there, kindly, is a Hebrew word we would pronounce hesed. It's an amazing word that comes up again and again and again throughout scriptures. It's, it's mentioned many, many, many times. It's probably best translated God's mercy or God's loving kindness. Loving kindness or mercy. Psalm 136 is this place where the psalm, it's the whole theme of the psalm. If you're familiar with Psalm 136, it, it repeats this 26 times that uses this phrase, for his mercy endures forever. God's hesed endures forever. And so Naomi says to her daughter-in-laws, with this love, as you have been so kind to us, may God May the Lord deal kindly with you. Friends, this might be hard for us to understand. But there is often in great pain an opportunity to love in a great way. And this is really hard because most of us would say, well, I really don't want the pain part. But I wonder if that pain part was the opportunity for us to learn to really love. See, oftentimes it requires loss. It requires times when we are struggling. 
Maybe in your life you've had opportunities to love out of a painful situation. Sometimes we do well. Sometimes we don't. Let me give you a couple examples out of my life. 1997, my wife and I had taken a trip with our three young boys to Europe. And we were in Ireland. And here we are in this foreign land. This is, of course, before cell phones. I know some of you won't even believe there was that time. But just keep that idea in mind. Pretend there were never, never no cell phones. And um, we're there, and we're going to go visit this beautiful park in Ireland that had a really nice running river running through it. And we get out of the car. Everybody's excited. I, I unbuckle one kid. I unbuckle two kids. I unbuckle three kids from the back, and we're going to go. And I turn around, and I see one son. I see two sons. Where's Caleb? Ugh. My three-year-old. My three-year-old had vanished. And I look around and I call out his name, Caleb! And I see nothing. I hear nothing. No, the only thing I see actually is the water and the river. And my heart is filled with fear. And there's a path leading on to where you're going to walk alongside the river. And I'm thinking, Caleb ran ahead on the park. Oh, that kid. And so I, I, I start walking down the path real quickly. I'm telling Caleb, Caleb! Caleb! And the farther I walk down the path, the more my heart begins to race because he's not there. So I start walking faster thinking, man, he ran up ahead. And, but I'm looking at that water and I'm thinking if he falls in that water and I can start calling out. And then I start talking to people. Have you seen a little boy? I'm looking for a little boy. And, and I am absolutely panicked by the time I get to the end. And then I get to the end of the path and there's nothing. It's the end of the path and I haven't found him. And I frantically go running back to the car thinking, Ursula, what, what do we do? We can't call. And there's Caleb. <laughs> Caleb had taken the moment to think it would be kind of funny to hide behind a tree. Well, we're, well I lost the humor in that. And you know what? There was an opportunity that God had given me out of great pain to love. But I thought at that moment, I was not filled with love. I was filled with anger. And I'm sad to say, I let that anger loose on that little boy. Because really, at that moment, I was thinking more about me. And I was thinking about him. Oh yeah, you say, well, it makes sense, you're mad. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, I justified that in my life for a long time. But even as we've been going through this parenting class, reading through a book together, recognizing that one of the chief opportunities and, and responsibilities of a parent is to create a, a safe, secure environment for the kids. What a foundation that is, that our kids can know their love, not conditionally, but unconditionally. I really fell short that day. I missed an opportunity to really love my son. But God's good. God gives us repeated opportunities because he wants us to learn to trust him. So 15 years later, God gave me another real opportunity to, to experience, to practice chesed love. 
Uh, this time, a different setting. I, I was having breakfast with my wife um, at, how can I say this? It was one of the most expensive places we had ever stayed. It was the hospital. And it was at the end of an 18-month odyssey of my wife, Ursula, battling with her health. And along that path, they had found that she had a tumor in her lung. And we were now at the end of that because she had had a surgery to remove that. The doctors had assured us that the tumor did not appear cancerous. And so that morning, it was nice. It was the first time she'd actually gotten out of bed after the major surgery we're having breakfast, breakfast, and the doctor comes in with four nurses. And we were, we were informed otherwise. The tumor was cancerous. That was such a strange moment where everything just seemed to reel. It was, it was hard to understand, and, and it was even longer and more horrible to think What followed was undoubtedly the hardest and scariest time of either of our lives. Perhaps sometimes we can share the story more fully, but what started as allergies and asthma had now become become a lung tumor that was dwarfed by the specter of cancer. And lung cancer was completely eclipsed when we stared the reality of stage four ovarian cancer in the face. And that summer, I thought I was gonna lose my life. Yet God in his mercy, he did others. He had other plans. But you know, it was in the moment of that loss that for the first time, I think I really started to appreciate my wife more. When I realized I might be losing her, wow, what a gift she was. And I would love to tell you that today, that since then I've loved my wife so very well ever since that day. I can't tell you that. You see, friends, it's out of very, very painful situations that God gives us the opportunity to, to trust in his goodness despite what we are feeling, despite what, what is all around us. And God, out of pain, gives us an opportunity to love in ways that we thought we never could. I, I love how Paul Miller describes Hesed love. He says it's, it's commitment and sacrifice. He says Hesed love is a one-way love. It's a love without an exit strategy. When you love with Hesed love, you bind yourself to the object of your love no matter what the response is. He goes on to say, when feelings are the standard, we are left adrift on a turbulent sea because every good feeling becomes a new path. So we become good at starting to love, but bad at finishing. 
Soon we are lost and alone in a maze of relationships. And when we get lost, we hunt for an escape. It is easy to appear to be doing hasad when in fact you've exited a relationship emotionally. If someone has hurt you, you may slip into emotional revenge, hunting for bad news about that person or just running a magnifying glass over his or her character. Or you exit in your mind by creating or nourishing a world that doesn't exist. Guys, guys can be drawn to pornography and women to romance novels, or both and or either or. Because Hesed love isn't centered on the fairness. Because Hesed love isn't centered on the fairness, it can be reset quickly. For, for example, if you've had an argument with a spouse or a friend, you may be tempted to pull away. To distance yourself. And sometimes that distancing is a good thing. It's appropriate. But more often than not, it's a silent mini-revenge. It's a way of punishing the other person for hurting you. You see, but with hesed love, after an argument, even when the tensions are in the air, you don't allow your spirit to pull away. You move towards that other person. You don't allow the ugly space to grow. Why is Hesed love so important? Because life is moody. Feelings come and they go, and pressures rise and fall, passions ebb and flow. Hesed is a stake in the heart of the changing seasons of life. It's words of commitment that create a bond that stands against the moodiness of life. You see, here in this first chapter of of Ruth, we see two things. We see Naomi broken, but then we see Naomi blessing. I mean, Naomi loses everything, and you know what the hope here is? Friends, we have a Savior who lost everything. In fact, he didn't just lose everything, he gave everything up. Philippians chapter 2. He humbled himself to the point of death, even the death on a cross. You see, so if we feel like we've, we've lost everything, what Chris reminded us before, that God knows, he doesn't just know about our pain, he knows how it feels. He has been there. Naomi's blessing. In her brokenness, she blesses her daughters. She looks beyond herself. She stops thinking about what is going to be good for me, what is going to help me, and she, and she turns to her daughters and she blesses them. Friends, that is the love of God. You and I don't have that love in ourselves. You and I can't manufacture that love. But one of the greatest places to find that love is when we come to the end of ourselves. When we realize there's nothing in me left to love anymore, I need God's love. Oh, friends, may we learn to turn to God early.
We don't have to wait till we're completely empty. We don't have to wait till we're completely depleted. We can call upon God every day. God, I need your love. The prayer in the book of Philippians is very, very, very clear. Paul says to the Philippians, I pray that your love would abound. I pray your love would abound more and more. There's no ceiling on this. And friends, when we see ourselves, yes, I need to be filled with the love of God. Rest assured, he will answer that prayer. Is there someone in your life that is difficult to love? Most likely. What an opportunity for God to be at work in us, to love, to care, to forgive. Oh, may we love not just in pretense. May God teach us to love in deed and in truth. We'll come back next week. Come back next week. We'll see how how Naomi's daughter-in-laws respond to Naomi's words. I'd like to close now and give us a chance to respond. I'd like to ask you, wow, are you at a place where you see that you need God's love? Maybe, maybe that God's love is a foreign idea to you. Maybe, maybe you think, well, I, I don't know exactly what that is. This unconditional love, this love that has the other's highest good in mind, that is the love of God. Friends, I hope you know the best place to see the love of God is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because he, at the cross of Jesus, we see fully our liability, our sinfulness, and God's love being poured out. The verse for next week, for next month, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Friends, Jesus did not die for any good people. He died for people in need, people who were broken, people who were sinners, people who had opposed him, people that were just rotten. That's us. And that's the grace of God. Friends, if you don't know that love, I hope you turn to somebody right here today, ask about that. As we, as we, as we gather for time to pray together, may I encourage you to be praying for one another. Wow, would you pray for me? that God's love would abound in me more and more. I hope we don't leave here tonight thinking, yeah, I, I love enough. I hope you don't think, yeah, yeah, I, I got that down. What a great thing when we, we just turn to our, each other humbly and say, hey, yeah, you want to pray for me this week? Pray that God's love would abound more in me. Let's pray and ask God that right now. Our Father in God, we praise you that you are the God of our story. And if today we look at our story and it makes no sense, it makes no sense like the story of Naomi, may you give us faith, God, to believe that you are working a bigger story. You have a plan and purpose for our lives, God. You are using us as threads in a far greater tapestry. Oh God, how we ask for the grace to to submit ourselves to you, to trust you, 
to confess our, our helplessness, to confess our unbelief, to confess our anxiety, to confess, God, we're, our, our need. God, you know. You have searched us and known us. So, God, may we, may we be able to come before you honestly. God, may we give us the grace to confess what we are not. But, God, give us the help to embrace what you are. And may we know the completeness that you've offered us in Christ. The forgiveness, the grace, the covering. So, Lord, ultimately, at the end of the day, we are needy. We have no strength in ourselves to stand. God, in ourselves, we have no goodness. So we we turn to you, God, and say, Father, be glorified in our lives today. Help us. Oh, God, help us to love others well. God, fill us full of that love. We pray. God, may the love of Christ abound in us. May we know that we're loved. And God, may we walk in that love. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.